to This Week in Higher Ed. Uh, Mike Palmer here, joined as always by Dr. Terry Givens. Terry, how are you doing today? I am very good today. <laughs> and, uh, and we have a return engagement. We're very excited to have uh, Jonathan Friedman with us, uh, who's from Penn America. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here. Hi, Mike. Hi, Terry. Yeah, and there's a lot going on, a lot for us to talk about. And uh, maybe just at the very top, Jonathan, can you uh, remind folks uh, what PEN America is, what you're doing, just so that they understand uh, what's going to be the main focus uh, of today's conversation. Absolutely. Um, uh, at PEN America, I direct our efforts on free expression and education uh, with a significant focus on uh, higher education and free speech and diversity inclusion in uh, on campuses. Um, we've been very active uh, this week and in particular today in starting to uh, help push back against state legislation around the U.S. that is uh, impinging on uh, the freedom of expression for teachers and students in schools and colleges. And we've been also rolling out a set of new uh, workshops and training programs for faculty and for students to uh, encourage and uh, improve upon their free speech literacy uh, in educational context. So that's some of the stuff that I thought we could uh, talk about today. Absolutely. Uh, looking okay. forward to, to all that. And uh, and Terry, we always like to kick it off with what's capturing our imagination, our attention these days, anything new, yes. exciting. Uh, where, where's, where, where are you at uh, these days? What's going on in your world? Well, first of all, big news in California. We are opening up today, so ah. people are able to get rid of masks, although I'm still wearing masks in indoor spaces just to be you know, it's, I think a lot of people are, are feeling like, you know, especially indoor spaces where there's, you know, people working, it's a good idea to continue to wear a mask and I will yeah. do that. Um, I'm also heading off to Montreal in a couple of weeks to start my new gig at McGill University. And mm -hmm. actually it's really interesting because, um, you know, in what's very relevant is we had a conference on academic freedom um, just a, a week ago, uh, I believe, and it, it was uh, very well attended, lots of interest up in Canada about this topic, and so I think this is going to be a really rich discussion today. Yeah, that's exciting, and uh, I think we're going to get more cosmopolitan by virtue of your move to Montreal. We'll probably uh, maybe bring in a little more French, uh, you know, French language and great cuisine, <laughs> great, 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 great culture up there. Lots, lots of stuff like that. And then here in Brooklyn, uh, it's kind of similar. Uh, um, I think there's a lot of uh, folks who are still wearing masks. Interesting thing that I've been tracking is there's uh, some research out there saying like, if we continued with some of the indoor masking practices, we might be able to eliminate the flu which like, we had a record low flu season because of our practices that were limiting the spread of COVID. And it is interesting that some of these practices are actually better for limiting the transmission of disease. Um, but it, it, you know, it's just so strange how it's become uh, a political statement uh, and a place where you, know, you have to land on a team in terms of your masking practices which I think very much does tie to um, to a lot of what uh, what we're probably going to be talking about uh, today with you, Jonathan. And um, and then where are you based in uh, this great, big, beautiful world of ours, Jonathan? And what's going on in in your neck of the woods? Uh, well, I'm here in New York with you, Mike, and uh, we are uh, you know the city is celebrating reopening. We had a fireworks show here in New York as yes. Governor Cuomo has proclaimed that the 
I don't know if the pandemic is yet officially over, but everywhere except in hospitals and schools and the uh, subway of New York City, it, it seems to be. Uh, and, it, you know, it's an exciting time to see the city um, really breathing, you know, having life breathed into it again. Uh, the people of New York being out in public is such a key feature of the experience of New York, and it has been um, a ghost town in aspects of it for for over a year now and so yeah. um people are are reuniting it feels like um there's a song that was written in uh by louis armstrong that keeps playing in my head you know what a wonderful world i see these people see you know greeting one another and i feel mm. like everybody are on the street right now that's that's what is in the air the, the store the song was written about queens originally so yes. it was inspired by queens so it is a fitting song to uh, uh kind of have in our backgrounds as we reopen Oh, I'm ready for I'm ready for some Satchmo uh, as our like underscore for for the rest of maybe he'll just be our our, our, our spiritual inspiration uh, for the for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, you know, and interestingly in New York because uh, it does remind me a little bit of Montreal as well. Is like it's become much more of a outdoor um, socialization spaces are emerging in new ways. Like all restaurants all have outdoor seating that's not going to be rolled back, um, mm. and um, it does feel like. Uh, in some ways, there's more of a European cosmopolitan kind of vibe to uh, to how we're socializing. And to your point, Terry, like I don't I don't feel as comfortable in indoor spaces with other people as I as I did before. And I don't imagine that that's going to change. I feel very comfortable in aggregate settings that are outside. But uh, but I think just how we think about uh, space has changed in some interesting ways. And, and I thought that might be an interesting place to pick up with you, Jonathan, as well, is I've heard more lately about uh, incidents. Uh, you know, I, I saw uh, an article recently about uh, air rage where people on planes are getting into it with each other more now that we are starting to get back into these aggregate settings, congregates, congregations, uh, in, in not the most uh, spiritual way. I think we're actually being around others and are forced to engage with them in new ways. I know you've been tracking this uh, from the context of uh, a free expression, and that's definitely something that we're going to want to talk about in terms of campus life. But have you been at, at PEN America or just generally in, in your world? Are there ways to track like how on edge and how contentious things are and you know is that a trend that you're starting to see uh that you've seen increasing or do you have any any read on how well folks are getting along and how much we're we're, we're encountering uh more uh conflict and uh dissent whether whether in higher ed or elsewhere man you are this is such an interesting question and you're you're posing it to someone who's thought a lot about uh, the sociology and, and politics of, of how we think about this. I'd be curious to hear Terry's answer as well. But, um, you know, I don't think we have a tracker for it, but certainly my observation of this is that the uh, the rage is kind of has to go somewhere and it's just moving around. And, and in many ways, I think some of the anger that was fomented uh, around the Tea Party era, actually, uh, has really just kind of bounced around uh, and found new targets. Um, so it was, uh, you know, against, I don't know, whether it was against Obama and Obamacare, whether it was against um, campuses and the sense that those that campuses are have become, uh, you know, inhospitable to free speech. Um, and in that kind of anger, 
uh, is now we're seeing it arise in school board meetings and school districts and PTAs. And I think that is really opening up as the new frontier where, I mean, obviously the um, effects of the pandemic on parents have been significant. Uh, you know, you can't think of a uh, a time in recent history where so much was so much responsibility was placed on parents and such high expectations of them. Um, I read some study that we have fewer women, uh, all the mothers who essentially left the workplace during the pandemic, and you know maybe that is playing some role. Uh, but now we have uh, viral images of uh, school districts, school board meetings where they have to take recesses because everyone is shouting at each other so much about. Um, perceptions of what is being taught or not taught with regard to racism and, and history and culture and you know the meaning of America mm. and it the battle is pitched the people are digging in and as you said you know staking their claim on one side or the other and I think that that sense of um uh you know conflict and, and rage let's say is I don't think that that's going to dissipate uh over the summer yeah and Terry uh perspective from from your neck of the woods on this Right. Well, in terms of increasing kind of tension, I mean, a lot of this is, I think we're, we're going to see this happening increasingly as we kind of come out of the, the quarantine and the COVID and, and all of that. Um, part of it is just, I think Jonathan's right about this in terms of just pent up frustration. And, and you know, as we start to interact with each other, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, it, tension around, you know, I think people, there's a lot of confusion still about what we should be doing, right? And um, there's just been so much that's been going on politically. Um, you know, I know, you know, a, a friend of ours, um, Cynthia Miller Idris is kind of following what's going on in terms of, of hate groups and hate crimes. And, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, the, the, one of the places that tracks this close, closely is the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, not necessarily kind of just the, the, the you know, stuff that's happening on airplanes, more of the hate crimes and so right. on. But I do think we're actually, I, the, I think I have seen data that shows that hate crimes are increasing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, certainly with, you know, we, we see what's happening with Asian American Pacific Islanders. Um, yeah. That's definitely on the increase. Um, and so I think a lot of this is in some many ways connected to what's going on with the, you know, this transition um, from COVID. And, you know, the reality is with the variants coming out, I think that's, you know, a big concern, you know, that uh, the unvaccinated are going to be impacted and, and so on. So, yeah. you know, there's just a lot floating out there. And of course, as social scientists, you know, we, we tend to need, you know, we have to collect the data before we can give you any trends. And, right. uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center, 538.com, you know, mm -hmm. organizations like that are probably doing a lot more tracking of, of these different trends. Yeah, yeah. And then at the same time, the other uh, dimension that I, I know you've talked about, uh, Jonathan, that is interesting is the role of social media and new ways in which we get our information, where uh, there is the term like filter bubbles, uh, which is one that I've been uh, thinking about more where, you know, when we're all secluded in our homes and generally getting our information from limited uh, resources and, you know, echo chambers who tend to think the same way, I think that does tend to increase uh, some of the polarization and some of the thinking that this is the only way to think. And when you're exposed to difference, it immediately becomes uh, almost tribal uh, in terms of us versus them and one's going to win, one's going to lose. Uh, I know that's also part of what uh, your course, I think, is going to be designed to help 
educators and folks in higher education uh, understand how to help facilitate more healthy discourse and uh, ways to resolve and and address some of the conflicts that are out there today. But uh, but any perspective on uh, the role of uh, our media diets and how that has changed uh, in recent years and then probably was uh, exacerbated by the pandemic to some extent? Oh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's extreme. We thought it was bad a year and a half ago. Uh, remember remember that. Um, and uh, and we thought it was and we placed a lot of, I think, blame may probably rightly so on President Trump. But it's clear that um, that sense of daily outrage, a daily diet of outrage is very palpable. Um, and you see you, you almost see somebody's news, somebody's name now, a name of a famous person in the news. And you're immediately wondering, well, what did they do, or what did they say, or or and then you're asking yourself, should I be angry about this? I don't know. And then you have to kind of decide how much time you're going to spend educating yourself on the latest outrage and how you're going to decide to feel about it. And it's very difficult to do that independent of you know the noise and the opinions and the echo chambers uh, that are telling you um, to feel one way or another about it. Um, but I will say that the polarization that we're experiencing, the social media, the echo chambers, all of it has put, I do think, unprecedented pressure on institutions and spaces where we think people can still get together. Uh, mm -hmm. Public libraries, public schools, public universities, uh, publishing houses, um, the, the notion of the internet itself as a place for uh, discussion and debate in a somewhat neutral way, uh, um, all of that, all of those places, um, spaces of interaction that um, once upon a time, their task of being kind of open uh, seemed, I think, easier than it does right now. And, and mm -hmm. there's a host of reasons for why that is, including the sense that those who are deliberately trafficking in, in falsehoods uh, have, you know, started to do that with greater swagger and greater confidence and greater reach. And, you know, then the rest of us uh, have to live with those consequences. I mean, there's no question that all of us right now are subject to some piece of disinformation once a day. Uh, and, you know, if you really were to search over your own social media or, you know, if you had an archive of all your conversations with people, you'd be surprised that something you told somebody the last, you know, three months isn't true or isn't the whole story. And there's no question that is affecting all of us. Um, and that is, you know, to turn for a second to this course that we're gonna offer with Brighter Higher Ed in Pan America this July, that is really the impetus for it, is to help people who, are on the front lines of working in those institutions and spaces where we do hope and expect that they might still somehow be able to be open to a diversity of, you know, disagreeing and sometimes contentious views. And, you know, we've talked a lot in the pandemic about frontline workers in a health sense. But when we think about frontline workers in a democracy sense, um, actually, those are professors and teachers um, and, and librarians. And they're the, the, the burden of trying to manage this moment is high. It's significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Terry, and Terry, I know uh, you've talked many times about how there's a, a shortage of resources for educators uh, to to just know how to teach, to know how to advance as a into management or administration. Uh, I know that's something that's been very important to to brighter higher ed and to you. Um, what's your perspective on educating people? Uh, in these spaces in uh, facilitating free expression and understanding how to do it uh, in, in a measured and uh, fair and equitable way. 
Well, yeah, Jonathan said it, faculty are on the front lines. And, you know, in, in particular in, you know, the, the kinds of courses where you know you're going to be discussing contentious issues. I'm a political scientist, so I, I know what this is, how this works. And you know the issues we don't you know, think about graduate school. We don't teach fat, you know, future faculty necessarily. I, I think there are some institutions to do that do, but it's not like built into our curriculum that we we teach graduate students. You know what is academic freedom and what does it mean to you, know, especially. You know, we don't teach faculty to teach for the most part, <laughs> let alone how to manage um, these issues in the classroom. And so what happens is, you know, we have these, these workshops maybe that, that happen, you know, or, you know, think about faculty orientation. Um, you know, I'm going to be going through that as a new faculty member at an institution. Are, you know, how much am I going to, you know, you don't really have a lot of time in those uh, situations to teach faculty about the complexities of academic freedom and freedom of expression, um, mm -hmm. you know, let alone, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know. So these are things we, I think that what we're going to see happening are going to have to be built into, you know, kind of ongoing um, training and discussions and, and so on at institutions because it's becoming more and more critical as we, um, you know, figure out, I mean, you know, diversity of thought is important. You know, I want, you know, I always try to create a classroom space where students from all sides of the political spectrum feel like they can express their, their perspectives and views mm -hmm. um, without fear or without worrying about being shouted down or, or, or things like that or, mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, and so I think it's really important that um, we come at it from a factual, ba factually based and evidence based, but, um, you know, basically creating a classroom space that is, is you, know, uh, you know, open to students, but understanding that there are limits to, you know, what they can say in the classroom. So yeah. um, that's, that's a really tough, um, you know, thing to, to manage and to find the right balance. Yeah, and and then Jonathan, uh, I know I, I believe today this this just in, uh, Pen America and and many others have come out uh, with uh, with a statement uh, talking about how to uh, really combat some of the chilling effects that is out there now around the uh, critical race theory and uh, you know. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, you know, got a lot of notoriety around, uh, you know, not getting tenure at uh, University of North Carolina because of the, the 1619 project, among other things. Uh, that's become a, a, a very heated focal point in, in the national discourse. Can you catch us up a little more on uh, what PEN America uh, has been doing and, and how, uh, you know, you're trying to uh, come at this problem? Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, I think, um, you know, suddenly there is everyone in the country seems to be talking about critical race theory. And then when you ask a great number of people, what is critical race theory? They have no definition of it. And so we have to start from the premise that I want to be clear. There is a national conversation taking place about something without anybody, without with with 98 percent of the people talking, not really knowing what they're talking about. And maybe that is. Um, typical of a country, you know, in the wake of the last president, um, typical of uh, a media ecosystem that is more uh, oriented toward ginning up outrage than it is to informing people of facts and truths. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't really understand the mania around critical race theory right now without understanding the mania around campuses from the past two years. I mean, it really is one and the same. It is a effort that began with... Um, 
trying to spread falsehoods about the state of universities and university education and um, you know what a campus life is like uh, for for uh, you know free speech I think some of what the criticisms that were aired in the past few years were true were reasonable I think some of them were a great number of them were exaggerated um, and now I think that maybe it's because the pandemic you know shut down enough campuses that there that energy went somewhere new but now that energy um, again is going to secondary schools and, and below occasionally I think there are stories that have made national news of um, people who lead schools or who are conducting quote-unquote diversity trainings uh, that might be doing things that are questionable but the reaction to this is has been tenfold in that we've seen a wave of state level bills introduced based on uh, President Trump's executive order from last year about you know quote-unquote race and sex stereotyping that is essentially you know very strange legislation and I, I cannot stress this enough there's this everyone's talking about how bad is this legislation what does it really say what does it really do Nobody knows. Nobody understands it. It's deliberately and purposefully um, very convoluted in how it's all been written. Um, different states have taken this set of uh, constructs around what are quote unquote divisive concepts, and they've put other language around it to make bills that have widely different meanings. Some are about state institutions, some target schools, some target universities and schools, some proclaim to target private schools or even private colleges and universities. And that's quite surprising uh, from the, just given the history of how private schools have been regulated. Um, but this is the kind of extreme uh, moment we're in where suddenly this legislation started in a few places and now it's spreading like wildfire. I mean, over 20 states have introduced bills uh, and politicians are freely discussing their efforts to ban critical race theory. You know, you have governors saying, I essentially, I can't wait to ban it and it's so uh, bad. Uh, but then all the legislation doesn't actually ban critical race theory explicitly. It has all this other language dressed up as though it is um, trying to um, purge schools of racism and sexism. And then to oppose them, it becomes very difficult. And so uh, it's it's quite... Um, uh, there is just there is a really di real diversity of what has been done under this banner. Now, given how bad this legislation is, given how quickly it's spread, and given the absence of a clear and strong unified response, uh, we began speaking to a number of academic and educational groups in the past few weeks about you know what could we st start to do to um, speak out against them and to raise public awareness of just how um, troubling a lot of them are. Uh, and so the result was a letter that we published uh, today, uh, primarily in conjunction with the American Historical Association, the American Association of University Professors, and the Association of American Colleges and Universities. Um, and so it's a lot of associations with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, acronyms. Um, but then we we appealed each of us to our networks of other academic and educational organizations, and seventy six other groups signed on. Actually, now we're up to I think closer to eighty. Uh, we've had a few more uh, actor actors join today. Uh, organizations join us today. And so um, it's clear that uh, many informed individuals and associations and groups are looking at this legislation and quite concerned because this is the most widespread and coordinated effort to censor and stifle ideas and speech in educational institutions in recent memory. And, and it far it goes far beyond um, any um, uh any effort we saw deliberately done on any campuses by people in authority to silence speech. It's just beyond anything else we've seen. Yeah, and I do want to get back to uh, the, 
the flip side of this too, where um, historically a lot of free speech conversations have centered around um, extremists on the right who uh, have provoked a lot of response and folks who are very uh, strident about the First Amendment have been placed in a difficult position of defending uh, groups like, you know, famously the, the Nazis marching in, in Skokie. Um, like that, that's been a longstanding history for groups like Pan America. And it's challenging, it's particularly challenging in this day and age, I think, to, to foster both sides, you know, to actually protect uh, the rights uh, of those who are saying things that you actually disagree with, which I'd like to come back to that. But before we get there, I do see a question here from D. Van. Uh, how can educators embed critical race theory and anti-racism into their teaching practice or curriculum? Uh, Terry, do you want to get that one? Because I know that's something you spent a lot of time thinking about. Well, first of all, we, we need to define critical race theory. You know, it's not something you teach. It's not something that you would embed in a, a, a class or teaching practice. It's something that we use as social scientists, as law, you know, legal scholars use to frame their research. It's really not designed to be incorporated into teaching. On the other hand, anti-racism is something that can be incorporated into teaching practice and curriculum, but, you know, it's a very complicated issue. So, you know, I'm going to do it very differently in political science than I am than somebody in a math class is going to do. And it's more about the way that we approach our students and the way that we basically, you know, my number one thing, you know, that I tell people is be intentional. Make sure you aren't being biased against uh, you know particular types of students in your classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, I think what's really important is that faculty. Um, get, you know, I'm a proponent for training, right? <laughs> I mean, I do think professional development is important on this front, and we've done work on this um, with some universities as well as um, corporations in terms of uh, helping them understand that, you know, and of course, I'm going to talk about radical empathy because that yeah. is, is really designed, my book on, is designed to help uh, people under not just educators but anybody how to be anti-racist there's lots of books out there that talk about this but really it's about making sure you understand your own biases first mm -hmm. and then you can turn around and say okay i i know that it's 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 acknowledgement of our own you know, it's being vulnerable and saying yes i know i live in a world that has or structural race and you know the only place where crt touches on this is this idea of structural racism Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't even talk about CRT in my book on radical empathy, but I do talk about it in my next book, which is The Roots of Racism, because CRT helps us to frame the discussion. It is not, you know, something that, oh, here I'm going to teach CRT. No, I'm going to use CRT to frame, you know, my research and, and potentially my, my teaching if it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm talking about, you know, the, the fact that structural racism exists and how we can talk about it. Um, so in any case, um, you know, I, I really believe that it's important for uh, us as faculty to start with our own biases and then to, to see how that plays into the way that we interact with people, you know, and how we also, um, you know, are practicing empathy. How, you, you know, imagine if, you know, faculty could sit there and say, okay, I'm going to try to understand the perspectives of all my students. Now, it's hard to do in a big class, but, right. you know, more generally, that's, that's the kind of approach I think that is, is more useful. Yeah, and and I see a lot of uh, you know sin uh, uh, alignment with the way that I think about some of these issues in college classrooms in terms of you know if somebody says that something that that another student said has harmed them, 
you know, there's a way to react to and manage the situation that is neither dismissive of those uh, concerns, uh, nor allows them to um, uh, override the classroom debate so that it shuts down conversation and, and, and nothing more can be said. And I think this is very important for faculty to understand because though the current um, political alignment of these issues is one way, it's not hard for it to imagine the other. So for example, mm -hmm. when I say a student says they were harmed, most people are imagining um, I think the first case that people think of is, oh, it's a student of color saying that someone, a white student said something that offends them and, and therefore it shuts down conversation. But it is equally plausible. You could have a conservative student in class saying that they object to the way that President Trump's record is being uh, represented. Or you could have um, a student who grew up in China in class uh, who objects to the way that Chinese history is being discussed if they uh, learned in a school system where that narratives of that history uh, were not uh, based on, not, you know, subscribing to the same facts that we use in American schools or in American universities, certainly. And so there are a range of ways that we must be alert to maintaining a space in classrooms for um, discussion and for empathy. And it's really just about, it's about balancing these. Um, and, and on the critical race theory point, I'll just say, you know, it's a theory, it's multiple theories. It's not an agreed upon, it's yeah. not, it's not, a, not a single, it's the singularity of, of it, you know, really does injustice to what is actually, as far as I know, a dynamic field with disagreements about different, like, in like, like sociology, it's like saying, how do I embed, I don't know, uh, political science into uh, my class, it's not, it's never been as large a field of study as what we think of as others, but certainly there are internal disagreements in that body of work, but also that are much more, um, in get, you know, more appropriately engaged with, you know, in law schools and by uh, academics and intellectuals, I don't think it's a theory for how people, um, you know, get along in society. Yeah, yeah, it, do, it does make me think also about the the concept of psychological safety and building trust so that, you know, Terry, uh, you've talked a lot about the importance of being vulnerable and also um, modeling what it means to be present and aware of your feelings and aware of how you're, uh, you know, teaching through your example. Um, I'd like to get a little more into that uh, really with, with each of you around um, almost like the the social emotional component of being a great educator, facilitating these types of conversations in this very uh, contentious time. Because it, it feels like you need to be very self-aware, but then also uh, in some ways couch your own perspective in the same way that you will respond to others rather than you know feeling as though you need to establish the right way to think and instead way instead you're almost modeling the right way to engage with difference and to engage with uh like heightened emotion um i don't know if either of you have any perspective on that it's something i've been reflecting a lot on lately oh yeah i i would say that my approach is to be honest and transparent as much as i can with with you know people I work with as well as my students and so when I go into that classroom uh, you know I'm going to in you know September I'm going to do a check-in and I'm going to be honest about how I'm feeling about you know these transitions and, and I'm going to be teaching remotely still so um, but you know I know that some of the students will be going face-to-face -face again and, and you know I just you know, I think it's important to 
upfront address the fact that we're all under stress and this is a, a difficult time and you know we've all been touched by COVID in different ways and you know but that we have this really great opportunity learning opportunity and to grow from this and and that I'm going to do my best you know to be sensitive to their needs but also my own mm -hmm. because you know I, I, it's not like I'm not touched by this as well and I think that's the kind of approach that can really help students understand that you know we aren't they aren't in this alone you know we're in this together yeah I think it's a matter of also adjusting and calibrating our expectation of incoming students and what they're coming in with. And of course, some of this is learning lag um, affected by the pandemic, but even before it, um, most faculty coming into teach a group of students don't enter the room with the expectation that their students are being exposed to and influenced by falsehoods every day. How does that change how we enter that conversation? How does that change how we set the stage for academic um, conversation for citing sources and facts to reputable sources. I think that we, you know, many of us academics who uh, have published and kind of moved up in the ranks at a certain point in time, we take a lot of that for granted. Uh, and uh, the reality is um, not only do we have to recalibrate the um, our expectations of what students are arriving with, we also need to expect that they don't know the first thing about what it means to have a truly free and open debate. Few high schools truly allow that. In fact, high schools are often uh, sites where there can be much greater policing of what people say. And there are huge imbalances in what people understand about the First Amendment, free speech, academic freedom, uh, human rights, uh, the university and academia as an enterprise. And it's our job as faculty to set the tone for this. And I think the thing is that that's not really well done in orientations. And so if you're not doing that at the start of your class, well, by class number three or number four, you're going to see the ways in which uh, the lack of setting tone, the lack of being clear about expectations um, um, have impacted it. And, and, okay. and I'll say also it's an equity issue. We also, part of why we have assumptions about our incoming students is because we're used to teaching a whole bunch of students who we think come equally prepared to succeed in our classes. And so we haven't really been having this conversation nationally about free speech in conjunction with the conversation about equity and student success and um, um, the need for um, kind of leveling the playing field, but it's essential that we start to. Yeah. And actually, I want to jump in here because, Jonathan, you know, I teach a class that where I have to assume that students come in with misinformation, uh, immigration politics. Um, it's such a contentious issue that I just I immediately assume. And, you know, I, I that one of the reasons is I, I, I wrote a textbook is to put the facts out there. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I would also add there's another layer to this. You know, there's the there's intersectionality in terms of gender and, and race and, and, you know, religion even, you know, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of factors that are influencing faculties in different ways. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, um, you know, women, uh, people of color, people from different uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, uh, faculty and students come into this space with, um, you know, issues that they have to confront and deal with. And I think that's another thing that I say it's important along with trying to set up a framework for, you know, civil discussion and so on. It's important to acknowledge, you know, look, you know, we all come from different cultural backgrounds, you know, ethnicity, race, et cetera. And it's Definitely. important to honor each other's, you know, cultures and perspectives in, in a way that is, you know, supportive and, um, but also to, you know, we want things to be fact-based and evidence-based. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I guess 
maybe playing the role of devil's advocate or at least understanding some of the, the themes that are out there, because I imagine part of what you have to do to do uh, these types of, to facilitate these conversations well is to understand the more difficult conversations you might have. There is a, a threat out there nowadays uh, around the notion of white privilege and uh, the idea that uh, you know white people are feeling under siege, they're feeling attacked, and there's a reaction that you see frequently, which is, I haven't done any of this. Why am I being attacked? And you know, there, there's this this concept of white fragility that's also out there. There's a lot of these um, notions that are emerging around how uh, white people are part of the problem. And in that same context, we're trying to make everyone feel included and comfortable voicing their opinions. How do you navigate that? How do you uh, allow for that to be part of the conversation while still understanding when things cross a line, potentially become hateful or potentially lack uh, the critical thinking that really is, uh, I think, at the foundation of all of this. A critical race theory has critical in it. So, in some ways, higher education is helping people develop their their critical thought. But, uh, but any perspective on how to maybe empathize with that uh, that sense of being attacked that we are hearing, uh, particularly on the right. There's a lot of this conversation. Uh, emerging. I, I'd really love to hear from both of you on how do you incorporate it, that into the conversation without necessarily, uh, you know, losing the losing the thread. To me, uh, the potential to really improve the climate for disagreement and the and the range of feelings that we're all that you're you know talking about people having the range of criticisms that are being being leveled the range of uh, i don't know uh feelings that everyone is having right now about all of these discourses you know really is free speech and i think we have um i think there are groups on the left today who have little historical connection uh, of the ways in which free speech until extremely recently was a very strong um, radical progressive left idea. Uh, mm -hmm. They've only experienced it being championed by the right. You know, Jim Jordan this week um, announced he's going to start a campus free speech caucus. You can imagine, you know, that that the progressive elements of Congress don't really want to be on that caucus with him. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's very important that we try to reset and bring everyone back to the table around common understandings of the rules of engagement. And that's what free speech is about. And so free speech gives us, yes, the power to say things that are harmful to other people, but it absolutely allows for the radical critique of, you know, white privilege and some of the more powerful, uh, sharpened um, uh, feelings and ideas that are finally after a long time being given voice to and being serious, taken seriously, right? We really being heard by people. And so of course, when a, a, a significant critique of society is being aired, um, you know, until very recently it was largely dismissed. Now people are taking it seriously. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, that means it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And so I think that at the same time, um, you know, that I think that that kind of a common basis in free speech can allow for greater tolerance of these divergent views and greater wrestling, reckoning with these feelings around a lot of this. I was in a conversation recently 
where uh, someone who was talking a great deal about liberalism, the importance of liberalism to the university, the way in which it might be dying in universities, um, said that it was very important that we maintain a liberal order in college campuses, uh, and that should include uh, teaching a wide variety of ideas and not critical race theory. And, and that's what they said. And you're able to kind of see there, you say, well, hold on a minute. How are you committed to liberalism and free speech but you have some exception you're trying to create for some set of ideas that you are making a preconceived judgment don't deserve space. And when you kind of can, can bring that to someone's attention and, and highlight those contradictions, that's where you can start to change their minds. On the other side, I was in another conversation recently where uh, someone uh, who, who, you know, is, is white, you know, you have European descent, uh, was talking about, you know, their feelings that of, of being censored in society and being hyper careful about how they speak about a lot of issues. And someone of, you know, an African-American in the room said, you know, I hear what you're saying, but that's the way me and everyone I know has felt our whole lives. Yeah. And you, you could drop a pin in that moment, you know, and you could and and free speech has to allow for both of those feelings to be worked out, to be said, to be shared, to be heard. And that's why it's so essential uh, to, that it is it is really the under the underpinning of academic discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I pretty much agree with, with, with what Jonathan has said. You know, I, I don't think I can add much more except just to say that, you know, I, I think the broader issue is that faculty can't ignore this stuff anymore. Yeah, right. um, and I think, you know, there's a sense amongst faculty, oh, you know, I have so many burdens, you know, I have, you know, my service and my teaching and my research and, you know, I'm just, I just want to focus on that. And it's like, no, I mean, you know, this isn't, this is, this impacts every aspect, you know, it impacts our service and our teaching and our research. So yeah. um, the more educated we can, can become on these issues, the better off we're going to be going forward because, you know, we just can't sit back and wait for, you know, these things to happen. We have to to be, you know, and, and I can guarantee you they're going to be students um, in classes this fall who are going to be challenging faculty on, on what they're teaching and how they're teaching it. And they need to have, and it's up to, you know, faculty and their, their leadership to take on the responsibility to say, yes, we are going to help you in this process, you right. know, and not leave faculty out there on their own. And this is something I'm really advocating is that, to, you know, um, you know, leadership really step up and say, we need to help our faculty on this front. Yeah. And another trend related, I think, that we've talked about uh, in this conversation, it's been emerging in a number of fronts, is the idea of being trauma-informed mm -hmm. and understanding how to, one of the, one of the themes that I saw in the course that you're offering is the ability to de-escalate conflicts. Uh, I, I'd love to understand how we could train people, what techniques work well to, uh, to gauge when you want to encourage more, more speech and maybe allow for these conflicts to rise up. And then when it makes sense to, to turn the thermostat down a little bit and you know intervene as the person who's really responsible for this conversation, to uh, to sort of protect the rules of engagement and uh, the the sensitive feelings that that everyone will have when the conversation becomes a little more heated. Well, I I would just want to say you know my response to this question is informed by conversations I've had with a lot of people about this, and so I don't want to say that I have all the answers or that there are always easy answers. In fact, I think numerous situations, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to find the situation that requires 
judgment and you're going to have to find a way to be comfortable with that judgment. Um, but so our work in this uh, program this summer and our work at PAN over recent years has benefited tremendously from being open to conversation with you know people across the political spectrum in different kinds of roles in higher education, in diversity offices, in you know deanships, in department chairs, um, you know, really trying to say like, okay, well, how would you do this? How would you create a class where we allow uh, free speech and inclusion to be somehow harmonized? And so um, what we've come up with in this course are really strategies that can increase the confidence with which faculty can handle different circumstances and the confidence with which they can feel you know, empowered to make those judgments. How do I handle this? How should I handle this? Um, and, and also the ability to um, have the humility, I think, to say, you know what, I handled that badly last week. I'd like to address it this week so that we can move forward as a class, right? So mm -hmm. it, it's it's not one strategy. It's not one, you know, simple um, acronym that's going to solve every uh, tension and conflict. And some conflicts and some disagreements aren't going to be resolved in a classroom, and, and maybe they shouldn't all be. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, on one hand, I think uh, sometimes I talk about the need to have a special kind of tolerance for disagreement in an academic classroom, which is actually somewhat different from really most other spaces in which we speak with other people all the time. Um, I need more tolerance for my academic uh, setting for my classroom than I need for you know, my children, uh, you know, or my parents, right, or that that stranger at the grocery store, you know, it is really different. Uh, and it, it requires being uh, reflexive and conscientious about that difference. And then the other thing that I think a lot about is the ability to acknowledge and be empathetic. I mean, this I'm taking right from your 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 page, Terry. Um, regardless of the legal circumstances or my own personal feelings, you know, you're telling me that something I said offended you or upset you. I might not see it that way, but I can still begin from a place of acknowledging that I'm sorry that you heard it that way, or I'm sorry that I said it that way, or, you know, like I can express empathy regardless of, of the legality of whether that speech uh, in question or whether the, of the intention of the question. And so that doesn't mean I shouldn't be allowed to say it. It doesn't mean I won't say it again to somebody else, but it means that I can, you know, be a little bit more um, amenable to a surprising or unexpected response from somebody else. Mm -hmm. So we have a question, Mike. Um, uh, Anne is asking um, about the summer series. Is the registration an individual or institutional registration? Jonathan, you want to take that? Sure. So uh, right now we're... Um, this is uh, our first time we're offering this course this summer, and we're doing it on an individual basis. Uh, if you're interested in institutional registration for numerous people, we encourage you to reach out to us, and uh, we might be able to see if there are institutional deals. Uh, PEN America is also looking for colleges with which to partner to offer this to their faculty uh, starting in the fall. So this program this summer is really open to faculty from numerous institutions, but we are thinking about ways to bring it to uh, particular institutions uh, starting in the fall. So if you're interested in any of that, um, you're welcome to reach uh, out to us. I'll put my email uh, in the chat here. And while you're, while you're doing that, I, I think the other uh, theme that's out there nowadays, I mentioned it briefly before around the Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones, is that there is a perception, whether it's right or not, that certain topics may impact your ability to advance in your academic career, uh, particularly, you know, around some of the controversy that's emerging nowadays. So like if you're if you're on a tenure track and your tenure is at risk by being more um, out there, perhaps, uh, in, particularly in more con conservative states, uh, in the example of uh, 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 of Nicole, um, 
any perspective on that? You know, it's another interesting place where it does feel like um, the scales have shifted to a certain extent where higher ed traditionally understood as uh, maybe a little more liberal, left-leaning, uh, many of the uh, administrations are, are becoming more conservative. And, and then at the same time, you know, the right is, is, is taking a claim to free speech, uh, which is uh, kind of Orwellian in some interesting ways. But, but putting that aside, any perspective on um, advice you might give to folks early in their academic career who are maybe seeking tenure or trying to understand how to navigate the complexity of uh, the world we're in today. Any perspective, any advice you might want to give someone who's concerned about uh, maybe poking the wrong bear uh, nowadays? Terry, you want to go first? Actually, I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> well, I'll say this. Um, there is no course in academic freedom. I mean, just like we talk about, oh. I, I often reflect upon the lack of a course in the First Amendment and free speech for students. And I have tremendous sympathy for the students who have arrived to campuses who don't understand free speech and have been caricatured uh, in much media. But then how, when did we expect that they were going, that they learned it? Uh, the same truths are there for regarding professors and academic freedom. I got a PhD. I was an adjunct professor. I don't remember a single um, effort to educate me about my rights as a faculty member uh, in terms of academic freedom and its traditions and why it even exists. It was always something that, you know, was, was I don't know, not, not relevant to me personally in my academic work, um, but it's fundamental. And so, you know, we have at Penn, I have personally counseled numerous faculty members who are dealing with difficult situations on their campuses, um, particularly when they feel they've been subject to censorship. Uh, or are feeling um, uh, like they would face repercussions for what they say and what they teach. Uh, we have developed an online campus free speech guide, which has some advice about, you know, what academic freedom is and what are different scenarios you might face as a professor. I'm putting the link to that in the chat here as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that um, it is a really unfortunate turn and how impoverished we all are if the people whose job it is to conduct research, to seek out truth, to speak that truth of findings, feel so afraid of what they might find and what they might say that, you know, the world never hears it. And so the, the key to this is, is to understand is that there are significant protections in place for academic freedom. There, it is important for faculty to play a role in challenging uh, orthodoxies of all kinds, and um, that if you are facing a situation where your academic freedom is at stake, uh, you know, we at Penn and other groups in the country, um, and groups, I, I will stress groups across the political spectrum, are ready to stand up for academic freedom, and they are doing it, and we are doing it with them um, all the time. So it's often just a matter of uh, knowing the groups and the people who might be able to help you in a situation um, uh, uh, if you're facing it. The other thing I would add to that is one of the things I get really concerned about is self-censorship, where faculty or students are so concerned about, you know, saying the wrong thing or that they, they you know, it's kind of what you're getting at, Jonathan, is that we, we create an atmosphere where faculty and students don't feel like they can say certain things or talk about certain things. And, and that's something we have to continually combat. It, it's just, it's really difficult because you don't know when somebody's not saying something. Right, <laughs> um, right. And what? so that, yeah, go ahead. No, please. 
So I was just going to say, that's why this, this training is so important. And actually there's a book, Jonathan, and I were, I actually got a copy of the book. It's a, it's a book to help students making the transition to college, but it actually has an excellent section on um, academic free speech and, and how students should be interacting in the classroom. And so, um, you know, there are lots of resources out there and actually I'm going to encourage um, you know, the institutions I work with to get this book for, for their students because I, or at least, you know, highlight some of these things so that that, um, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, it's that they can latch on to and, and use as a tool to help them as they, they make their way into higher education. It also uh, seems, it, go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, all I was going to say is it's so, the self-censorship issue, you know, it's so important to remember that it's happening everywhere. Uh, it, it's not, it doesn't uh, happen to one side of the political spectrum. And I, I'm recalling the outpouring last summer of, uh, tweets and you know posts on facebook about racism in higher education and you know in the wake of many more conservative faculty saying they feel so censored it was really uh quite um quite quite you know eye-catching and and kind of just incredible to see that there were so many stories that people had been holding in about racism on campuses that came out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and jonathan do you remember the title of the book I you're talking about one i recommended yes we were yeah. both like yeah um, it's actually just over my shoulder but i'll put it oh, here I see it. Yes. it's called Mine's how yeah. it's called how to college i'll put a link to it here uh it's by lara schwartz who is one of the other facilitators of our uh program in the summer uh lara and i were fellows together at the university of california center for free speech and civic engagement a few years ago uh and it's through that partnership that lara and i and a third um uh, co-creator have uh, made the sessions and co-facilitate them in the series for the summer. I had a quick question for you, Terry. Um, you know, the the tumult around the Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, story uh, makes a ton of sense. I understand why it, it escalated to the point that it did, but I think in some ways um, it clouds, it, it, it crowds out the conversation about folks like yourself who've been able to push boundaries and introduce new conversations uh, and actually benefit from that conversation uh, or benefit from that activity. So um, without spending, you know, we're, we don't have a lot of time, but um, you, it does seem like there are some positive lessons around having the courage to put, uh, put yourself out there as well. And uh, I don't know if you or Jonathan have any perspective, like it, it almost feels like there's a service we should all be providing to not just highlight where there are these cautionary tales that are producing this chilling effect, but there are also examples where having that courage and putting yourself out there ultimately does lead to positive outcomes. And uh, I know we're getting close to close to time, but but maybe a little bit of perspective on that would be helpful. Yeah. Well, my perspective on that is, you know, we we do have opportunities to step in and step up. Um, and, you know, that's part of the reason we're seeing the backlash, right, is just as people are stepping up and speaking out. And I think last summer was, uh, you know, with the protests after the murder of George Floyd was kind of a, you know, it's so funny. I hate to use the word reckoning because I don't think this country has gotten to a reckoning yet. Um, it was a, is a, um, an inflection point. 
So I prefer that instead of the, so when we look at these inflection points, they do tend to push things forward. So it's a, it's a two steps forward, one step back type of situation. So mm -hmm. I think we did move two steps forward. And then in the last few months, there's an interesting um, article out that shows that the kind of the support for Black Lives Matter, you know, went up this way and now it's on its way back down, you know, and obviously a part some of this is partly why you're seeing this attack on critical race theory because it's also an attempt to kind of tampen down the support for things like black lives matter so i think we have to be very sanguine and and, and transparent about that um that that's you know the, the dynamic it's a very much political dynamic going on here and mm -hmm. so um you know but i do think you know we are slowly but surely making progress and we just have to figure out the best ways to approach the this in terms of dealing with the backlash that inevitably happens in these situations mm -hmm. and jonathan i don't know if you want to add to that i was going to say it is a backlash right and that, that this is um I, I feel like it's like you know two steps forward ten steps back i mean i said this before and i'll say it again the wave of legislation and its potential to stifle conversations in schools so far outpaces schools, colleges, universities, professors, libraries. I mean, there's all sorts of bad legislation that's being introduced. Um, it is so far outpaces what we might think of as the issues surrounding um, left-leaning professors being inhospitable to right-leaning students, which is how these issues have been characterized predominantly in more right-wing media. Uh, it's like they, they uh, have taken the um, examples that they were given to create a much more significant, um, you know, monster or, or kind of a false, um, uh, a caricatured idea of critical race theory and, and the backlash is extreme. Uh, and that's uh, why, why, in part, why it's so concerning. Yeah. And that's part of why we need to be putting a more uh, full perspective out there. Because uh, right now it does, it, I think a straw man is, is generally, the, the critical race theory as it's being presented by the right is a straw man that they're able to tear down and because we're so there's so little information getting out about these things in this outrage culture that you're talking about uh you know it's it's almost like the responsibility of all of us and particularly groups like uh, pen america who are really leading some of these efforts to to provide that fuller perspective uh to really encourage more critical uh thought and more genuine discourse uh we got about two minutes left so uh so final final salvos any any little uh little morsels of goodness we want to impart to our listeners i'll i'll just say it's nowhere more evident than in i think it's idaho where the governor has created a commission that is going to root out um marxism communism socialism critical race theory and and social justice in schools it's some litany of uh you know boogeyman terms uh and and it's serious it's a real commission they're actually meeting to discuss how to do this and that's where you really see just how um what a caricature uh, all of this has become mm -hmm. i think i think it's key to think about okay it's actually quite difficult to imagine as you mentioned terry how do we reckon with the past you know how do we have a truth and nas a national truth and reconciliation moment around a lot of these uh, uh issues and how do we do that for young people in schools this is an extremely difficult thing to do unfortunately one side of the current group of players at the table is so uncommitted to actually doing that in good faith it makes it really difficult for the rest of us to do so and to collaborate uh, uh to do it mm -hmm. yes and I'm, I'm come on christine made the comment um 
about uh, North Idaho College. I grew up in Spokane, which is right across the border there. So uh, yeah, I know all about the Aryan nations and, and so on. So, but anyway, just a last comment in our last minute. Um, I just think it's the, the work that Jonathan and PEN America and others are doing is so incredible and really helpful to faculty and you know i mean we're, we're not doing this because you know I, I can tell you for sure jonathan and, and brighter higher ed we don't do this work because we're making any money off of it we're doing it because it's really important work and i hope that folks will sign up for the course because i can't imagine anything more important at this point in time in our political system so and actually i'm going to see if i can talk jonathan and doing a follow-up conversation and maybe even mike on clubhouse because uh, I have my radical empathy group on Clubhouse. So if you're not on Clubhouse, please please uh, follow us there, and um, we'll see if we can get keep this conversation going. Great stuff. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Jonathan. Uh, always great to get some of your time. Hopefully, folks enjoyed the conversation. Terry, outstanding work as always. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, this is this week in higher ed. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.